The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, I'm Amber. And I'm Jessie. And this is Glowing in Tech. Sponsored by Makers. So today we have the lovely Simo joining us. And would you be able to introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about you? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm Simo. I'm a software engineering coach at Makers, uh, which is a bootcamp for learning how to code. Um, and I've been there for two years. Before that, I was a software engineer for around 10, well, I guess in total 10 years, maybe I've been a software engineer. And yeah, that's that's me. Awesome. And where are some of the places that you worked at before? Uh, I worked at, I started at Google, then I went, um, moved to London and started at a company called Memrise, which is a language learning app. Yes. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I went to Makers. Amazing. That's like a broad variety of yeah. different companies and also interesting that now you're you've done your 10 years and you're doing you're not only are you a software engineer but you're teaching as well mm -hmm. so yeah that's amazing that's amazing and that leads me nicely to the in industry insights, insights in five <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about makers what you do there uh, sure yeah so apparently i think uh makers is the oldest coding bootcamp in the uk or, Ooh, yeah. fun or the first one yeah, yeah. um and uh it's um nowadays it has a standard bootcamp model where you can go for like 16 weeks and then we help you find a job afterwards um uh, but also we do apprenticeships so um that's where i mainly work i work mm. with apprentices so they're already hired by a company um to do a full apprenticeship which in total takes like 18 months or two years or something like that but I'm with them at the beginning where they are learning we just basically do the boot camp with them then we send them on to their employers and we still help them while they're there so um it's quite varied I guess the day-to-day -day. Yeah. <laughs> is very varied because mm -hmm. we get so many students through and they change you know we have many cohorts at the same time and you kind of get to uh, meet a lot of different mm -hmm. people and meet them at different points in the journey and help them help them grow their career, I guess, or change careers. Mostly it's career changers. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a cool experience. Yeah, <laughs> and a big so change cool. as well. I want to know why you ended up at Makers and what was it that made you change from working at like a product-based company yeah. to, a, to a kind of bootcamp company? Yeah, it wasn't um, really a plan, I guess. I just, at Memrise, I got a bit stuck, uh, frustrated. Um, I didn't, I was a senior software engineer, but then I wasn't really quite sure. I knew I wanted to grow and, and do different things from what I was doing, I guess. Mm -hmm. But Memorize at the time also didn't really have that many other opportunities, but also um, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a manager or what uh, what yeah. the other things are, you know. Mm. Once you you keep, the work starts to repeat itself and you mm -hmm. kind of want to do something new, but I wasn't sure how to get there. So I took some time off, basically. I, I left Memorize during the pandemic. Um, 
and I was off work for like six months, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, which was actually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was this during, yes. was this, wait, so at what time was this though? Was this actually like lockdown? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> wow. I'd been planning on leaving, then the pandemic came. Um, I guess, yeah, I'd been planning on leaving. Then beginning of 2020, uh, that whole lockdown yeah. started. And I was like, well, but I still want to leave and I still mm. don't want know what to do next. So I still want to have a break. My plan was actually, I wanted to go um, visit family in Cameroon and things like that, mm. which obviously I couldn't do then. Mm-hmm. But I kind of liked it. I mean, I, I guess I'm one of the people that enjoyed lockdown. <laughs> I kind of yeah. liked the peace of it. So it wasn't too bad, actually. Um, and I had a lot of time to, I guess just figure out what i like and what i don't like and um got into new new uh, hobbies and things like that and and then i started looking around at some point i was like i need some kind of structure yeah again I, I want to do something again but i didn't i still didn't feel like i wanted to get another software engineer job so but i knew that i'd always sort of enjoyed mentoring when i was mm. engineer at makers uh, at makers at memorize <laughs> i always ms <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and so i thought well maybe i can do something in that direction uh, and that's how i came across makers makers <laughs> okay, nice. uh, i kind of just googled for mentoring opportunities i was more i was thinking at first like oh maybe there's some you know, those kind of entrepreneurship accelerator things mm-hmm. where I could mentor more like a side thing mm-hmm. until I figure out what I really want to do. But then there was that. And I'd also had some kind of very different experience of teaching because I'd done yoga teacher training and I taught yoga for a bit before. Oh, that's oh, amazing. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. Um, like when I was at Memorize, actually, I taught my colleagues. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> Do, doing yoga courses while you were like, yeah. like, oh, that's so cool. That's very nice. Yeah, because I'd kind of, I'd done um, yoga teacher training before I joined Memorize. Mm. And then I just kind of did it out of interest, not really because I wanted to be a teacher. But then while we were there, obviously, we had to practice teaching. And yeah. Like, this is actually kind of fun. Maybe mm. I could do it more. And yeah, and I, I asked at Memorize, can I? you know, do this. And there was some space in the office. So just after work, I kind of talk to people. That's really cool. That's so yeah. at what point, so you are taking some time out during the pandemic mm. and you were reflecting, you kind of during your break yeah. and then you found makers. What made you say that I want to now be a technical coach? What was that experience mm. like? Uh, you know, I guess I, I applied to makers. I applied to another place as well, which was also a coach kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and you know, I didn't know. I, <laughs> I was just kind of like, well, it sounds kind of like it could be fun, mm-hmm. and it sounds a bit like me. I, oh, now I remember another thing. I think at the time during the during my time off, I was also thinking maybe I should be a count a, a therapist. Ooh! <laughs> and so I'd done this like uh, intro to counseling short course mm. thing, and then the makers kind of job ad had a lot about like. You know, I guess part of coaching is sort of empathy, things like the interpersonal, uh, not just the absolutely, technical. yeah. And so I thought, well, actually, maybe I don't want to. I'm not sure I actually want to be a therapist right now. Mm. But then I do find that you know, people tell me I'm good at the interpersonal things, so yeah. maybe I can 
so this seems like I can put these things together or like, yeah, um, I can at least try and see what I would like to do still be in the sort of technical space but also explore a different side of myself I guess yeah, yeah I think really cool. I think it speaks to the importance of taking that career break because you were clearly like aware that what you were doing at Memorize wasn't fulfilling for you and you needed a change but not quite sure what the next step was so yeah. I think it's really cool that you had that time to think about it you had a pause and like you were able to find something that now you really enjoy right yeah mm. especially as a technical coach like do, what new like skills have you learned since doing that that role uh, um, probably a lot about, um, I mean, it sounds kind of dry, but like dealing with conflict, mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not the most, uh, I think I'm still working. I was working on be, being more assertive, but I've definitely had to learn that a lot more because mm. at first, I guess students, um, you know, you need to give them feedback, but also because you tra you're training adults, you it's not like you're just saying like go do this and then everyone will do it like they have mm. to work in teams sometimes that always leads to you know, people always um, yeah not getting along have friction yeah. things like that which is quite normal also because they don't know how to work in the software engineering team that's what they're supposed to learn so there's all these like conflicts about like i don't know how do we break up this these tasks so that everyone feels like they have something interesting to do and mm. this person is forging ahead while the others feel left behind or, mm. or vice versa or whatever things like that and I guess so often it's things like that it's like conflict between students maybe but you need to sort of facilitate a discussion between them or sort of find a way to um yeah to make their experience better and keep them on a learning track rather yeah. than like kind of into this sort of um place where I guess everyone's anxious and stressed and doesn't learn yeah because <laughs> it needs to be engaging comforting yeah. comfortable as well as pushing their boundaries because exactly. you're teaching people a very difficult to learn skill <laughs> yes. and they're doing yeah. it from starting from zero like it must be really tricky to navigate that sometimes yeah I mean it's the cool thing is that makers has we alongside the technical curriculum there's this emotional intelligence curriculum mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. um and that's delivered by other coaches uh, but um it sort of runs at the same time so the students have to do that part too where they learn more about like empathy communication group work things like that so that's like, kind of supportive because you're not starting you you, you know you have something to refer to yes exactly. and, and they have something to refer to um because it is kind of different like I guess that's one of the difficult things with being with this coaching is that there you do a lot of things at once like the technical stuff but then sometimes it's interpersonal stuff and sometimes mm. you have a bunch of just like admin and and sort of assessing people's work mm. you know it's very varied I guess which can be fun but also sometimes <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of context switching, I guess. Yeah, yes. it can be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, I've heard such great things about Makers Graduate. <laughs> I normally get like a lot of great feedback. Um, I definitely do want to touch on the kind of skills that like the best practices that you instill in new developers um, and go through some of them. Like some. So do you want to go through like TDD, Solid, stuff like yeah. that? So can you walk us through some best practices that you definitely like that you normally teach these yeah. um students um i guess the two central mm, yeah there's more than two but i would say uh 
Some of the central ones are TDD, mm -hmm. so test-driven development, and also pairing. Um, so they pretty much uh, pair maybe half of the time, unless they're working in teams, then then they're working in a team, and maybe they're pairing within their teams as well. But uh, usually, I guess the day, their days are split between like individual work and pairing work. Um, and so that, I guess, is already... Um, it's already supposed to help them develop these skills of sort mm -hmm. of talking about what they're doing out loud, helping someone else and learning from someone else, uh, explaining what they're what they've learned because that helps them reinforce their learning and things like that. So I guess that's the purpose of pairing, but also pair like educationally, but also obviously many companies like to have their engineers pair. So that's also what. Yeah, it's yeah. a really important thing to get from the beginning. It's mm -hmm. like, because from our boot camp, we had homework sessions to do together, but the majority of it was individual work, right? Yeah, exactly. And pairing can be quite a vulnerable thing when you're new. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember like when I was pairing at the start, I was like feeling quite self-conscious about my coding ability and someone's going to see like the way that I think, the way that I'm typing and like... The typos. The typos. <laughs> like the syntax errors, the problem solving. But I think that like once you get over that kind of ego, like, mm -hmm. and that like self-consciousness, it's so much easier to pair and using that as like a great learning opportunity to see like, to go through how you process problems, but also how other people do it as well. Yeah. In some of my pairing sessions, like I would pick up certain like just certain habits that they would do which weren't necessarily best practices yeah yeah so, so right. can you talk about, <laughs> so can you talk about like some best practices like that you think that people mm. should be implementing yeah i guess i think so test-driven development i think is pretty important for people that go through a boot it's, it's important it's useful for everyone i didn't used to do it before going to the makers i love test driven development wait so test driven development is when you test before you yeah you, you write your test first yeah. and it breaks and then you go and write the logic that will make the test run mm. yeah okay yeah and so the idea is i guess um what could happen is, is that you write the logic first then you write a test that matches the logic that um you've written but it might not exactly be the logic you intended it to, mm -hmm. like you might have written something else and then your test passes but you can't be sure whether it passes because you've just made it pass to match what you've written yeah. or because mm -hmm. it's really the logic you're intending or the requirements mm -hmm. or it meets the requirements so i guess the idea is first you write the test and you actually run the test and it you see it fail then you go and write this minimal amount of code to make that pass that test case and then you run the test and hopefully it, pa and it passes or you you run it, you go through that cycle until it passes uh and then you go on say if, if it's a complex algorithm you're writing you might your first test might just be i don't know one base case or like one one case of of input one type of input and maybe you write a second test case um uh with another type of input and then you write the logic that would make that input pass as well Mm. Uh, rather than writing all of the logic at once and then trying to test it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because you were talking about edge cases last time, right? Yeah, it can be really helpful to do it that way, I think, because you can then think through logically the different things that you want your code to do. Because otherwise you can miss those cases yeah. when you're writing the logic, right? And then the idea is if you've got all these test cases that you've written first and you've now made them pass, you can go back and edit and like kind of refactor your code to make it neater and cleaner 
and make sure it, that those changes you're making aren't going to break anything. Yeah. You've got those tests that you knew were working before. Whereas yeah. if you write the test afterwards, you you might not know, like it was working at some point. Yeah, you know? <laughs> where did it all go yeah, wrong? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And are you able, because you know me in the front end, but at least for the back end, are you able to see um, the test coverage? So if you've hit like 100%, because I know for Jess, we can normally see like the the test coverage and where like we need to account for tests? So I think it's a little bit more difficult to gather test coverage because like you use an automated tool to like calculate test coverage. Yeah. I don't think it's always accurate for unit tests. I don't know what you think. I guess, I think it can't be the only measure I suppose because you could, you can cover lines without necessarily testing them well. Ooh, yeah. That yeah, is yeah, yeah. such a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, okay, I need to cover this, but you're right. You, I may not be testing for the right thing, even though technically, the coverage is 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's a good <laughs> But if you're doing test-driven development, then you will have thought through those cases first and then match the logic to mm. the cases. So you're less likely to have missed bits out. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes that's sense. That's the other idea. I guess you never, what you could do if you write the logic first is that, and then you write some tests, you might not cover some of the lines mm. that you've written. Mm -hmm. you're just like, mm, yeah, okay, I've written a few tests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas if, like, I guess the reason it's called test driven is that the tests drive what you've, yes. what you, what logic you're writing. So you shouldn't ever be writing any extra logic that isn't required to make a test pass. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, if you take it to its extreme, it can get very, um, it can get a bit difficult. I think to do in if in a bigger um, program mm -hmm. or like if you have many different. Uh, a bigger system where you maybe don't quite know yet how exactly all of the classes say you're using object oriented code like how all the classes will work together what which classes you'll have and stuff like that sometimes i find that's what i find hard with test driven development because i'm i tend to kind of discover how i want to structure my code as mm -hmm. i'm writing it yeah <laughs> so sometimes i have to do the, a bit of that first and then be like okay now i know i want like three classes and I roughly know what methods they'll have. So now mm. I can start also writing the tests first. And then yeah. That. No, that's a really important point because you can definitely take it to the extreme, right? And it can be quite an opinionated thing as well. Some people can be very like diehard. You have to do TDD. I has know. Yeah. <laughs> like what is up with these people? <laughs> <laughs> but there is like, I think there's a way to use it in balance where like sometimes if it's a really complicated yeah. piece of code that you're starting from scratch and it's interacting with a load of systems, you might need to map out the logic first. So, yeah. Let's talk about solid and dry okay. and implementing that in our code. Uh, um, solid. Yeah, I think we, you know, we used to have more about solid in the curriculum, mm -hmm. but I don't think anyone can ever remember any of the OLED. People can re remember the S and I can remember the S, but then all the other ones are a bit like, okay, what exactly? Like they're very abstract, I think. Mm -hmm. So the S is, see, can I remember it? <laughs> it's separation of concerns isn't it single oh single, single oh yeah single responsibility <laughs> principle which is kind of i always think of it as separation of concerns which mm -hmm. is thing. Mm -hmm. um so that one we do that is the main thing i guess that uh we cover as part of object-oriented programming so i guess you asked before what are sort of the core practices um one of them is object-oriented programming tdd pairing um and so for object-oriented programming, I guess uh, objects and classes are quite an abstract kind of thing. 
And so that's kind of always a bit tricky to to get people uh, to grasp really what Definitely. is a class. Like, because <laughs> it's, it's like, what is a class? It's like a blueprint and things like that. But then, and then we kind of go through these exercises of, well, okay, how do you decide what should go in one class and what should go in another class? Mm-hmm. And that's where single responsibility principle comes in, where you think about like, okay, what are the responsibilities that each, um, that exist in this in this um i guess world that mm. we're, um so um in the domain i guess the mm-hmm. um so for example we'd start with user stories usually and then there's one method where you might pick out the nouns and the verbs which is not a foolproof method but you could look at nouns are tend to be uh, either things that could be a class or maybe they're like things that a class has um and then verbs often could be methods but then the question is like which you know which of the nouns is the classes is a class and which methods belong to which nouns and things like that so we try to kind of use methods like that to to help people design class systems i suppose yeah i think it's an important one to learn early on because and it can be difficult like you said it's difficult to grasp the concepts of like classes and and kind of separation of concerns but also it can be kind of opinionated too. Yeah, yeah. So when you go into that first code base in your first role, you can see like, oh, I learned that this is, we need to make sure we're following the solid design principles and keep everything separate. But I can see here that business logic is leaking into this class when it shouldn't. And um, so I think it's like, as important it is, as it is to learn and understand the fundamentals, it's a good way also to spot where there isn't always the neatest code yeah. to follow. <laughs> and like, I remember noticing that when I was joining, like, oh, I see not mistakes, but like ways that this could be improved or made easier to read. Because ultimately like for good code to be good code, although this is something I want to ask for your opinion on, yeah. it's not only do you want it to be performant and neat and clean, you also want it to be understandable and easy to maintain and build upon. And for that to be the case, you need that separation of concerns, right? Uh, how do you, how would you describe like good code or like good, good code? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you said. I think that's one way you can motivate students to, um, I guess, care about separation mm-hmm. of concerns. Cause that's mm-hmm. the other thing is like with, especially with, with any students really, like when you're trying to learn something, for some people it's more important than others, but in general it helps to know why, <laughs> uh, why am I doing this? Yeah. So, um, and they're kind of at the beginning used to just working on their, you know, maybe in pairs, but still like they're not working in a big team of people. Yeah. So they don't necessarily see like, well, you know, this code you in ten in in ten weeks you won't understand it anymore, and also yeah. you would ha- you would have this all whole other group of people that will need to understand it. There may so, be yeah, in a few months' time, if yeah. you're working on a big project, there may have been four or five people that have contributed to this file and changed yeah. what you wrote oh my gosh <laughs> yes yes and you know what I, that's what i did not i was not prepared for when i joined my first role like working on something and then i'll go back to it and it's gone and it's now been com- changed to something completely different yeah i think that a great thing about working with an actual code base is like for example i would not have necessarily appreciated having reusable components when when I'm doing my own personal projects. So it, it kind of introduces you to best practices, but within the industry versus best practices that you can implement on a project that you that's quite small. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that, that was really good to learn and especially about testing. 
So when I was doing my projects, trust and believe, I didn't know testing was a thing in the front end. Yeah, like, we, we didn't learn about testing on our bootcamp. Yeah, we didn't learn about testing. Like, And so when I'd see that on the Twitter threads, like, the road, the, the, you know that they they love to do a roadmap to like how to get your first developer job, and it felt like for back end there was a big emphasis on testing, mm -hmm. but it wasn't that same emphasis when it came to the front end. Mm -hmm. So it was good to learn the job things about like just the difference between unit testing and doing end to end testing, and just the fact that like unit testing actually tests tests your components, but like end to end tests. End-to-end -end testing tests like how your components work amongst each other. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could test like a button component to see like the on-click function works and it leads you to something else. But like in your end-to-end -end test, you'd see if that button leads you to this next page or like you'd see the fact that within this form, for example, and you put in like certain elements, if you ask, oh, I'm going on a tangent. No, no, it's okay. No, <laughs> Explain an end-to-end -end test, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just about like how your button component interacts with your form component and making sure that they all work in sync the way you expect it to which kind of like links to behavior-driven development because you're testing the behavior of when you enter certain inputs into this form and you click create, is the API being called and has, has it actually sent the details from your form into the post request, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, yeah, if we were to summarize behavior-driven development, I think it's working together with a product manager to define a behavior and then building to that. And that's where the end-to-end -end test will kind of test that behavior as opposed to a unit test which is like a small measurement yeah. of a tiny part of the yeah. code base it's like mm. more holistic yeah exactly and that's why like having good tickets is so important mm. so you know like the acceptance criteria because mm. <laughs> you have to tick off like what does this actually need to do like you can have a ticket could say create a form but what inputs do you need to put on the form <laughs> like that's why good tickets make such a big difference yeah yeah well-defined tickets she sounds salty <laughs> no yeah, <my> I'm, <laughs> I want who who writes who do you think should be writing tickets oh <laughs> okay all right I'd love to hear your opinions on these listeners because I've worked at two organizations that do tickets very differently yeah so the first place that I worked it was mostly on on the developers I wouldn't say I was working that closely with product managers so we like in the ideation sessions when we would were like planning for like the products that we were working on in different sprints We'd see, for example, like the page that we need to build and we'd break that up ourselves and write <laughs> individual tickets, including the acceptance criteria. So when you're refining, you're creating the, the acceptance criteria and yeah. you're delegating it amongst the team at that point? No, it's more like the first part was just writing out the acceptance okay. criteria and like breaking down the problems. It was mostly the developers that were actually breaking down the problem and coming up with the acceptance criteria. But... At my second organization, <laughs> it actually feels like the product manager has more involvement and is the one writing the tickets. But in refinement, it tends to be developers saying it. And I guess the product managers are writing it because mm. we have the technical understanding of how to actually implement something. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so you're saying that there can be message lost in that translation? I think that sometimes it's it's more challenging for if a product manager doesn't isn't necessarily that technical mm. for them to understand the capabilities of either the front end or the back end mm. and how much the ticket needs to be split by if that makes sense that does make sense but i think that is coming back to behavior driven development that's the problem it's trying to solve is like mm. translating a non-technical requirement into something that then a developer will take away and and build 
So who do you think should write tickets then? Yeah, what's your opinion? Ah, <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. I guess I've always been a back end uh, engineer. Or Shout out more, to back end. <laughs> more of a back end engineer. So I've, I guess I don't know whether that's common for um, back end engineers or it's just how it's happened to me. I, in my work, I guess product managers tend to have been less involved anyway because they're mm, because I suppose most of the requirements that they care about are more the visual things or the general behavior of the app say memorize uh, and then for me it would be like okay well I'm discussing with the client engineers what kind of changes do we need to make for our API like Mm. what should the api design be mm. and i'm thinking like what should the database table schema be and or what do, you know so but, what, what is a client engineer oh by that i just mean um the engineers that work at memorize that would be the engineers that worked on the android and the ios uh, okay or okay. or i guess front-end engineer yeah, yeah yeah okay so you're working with the engineers who have already done their front end part or are you like uh, doing it in parallel in parallel yeah. I guess. um because sometimes yeah sometimes they need a minimum from the back end side yeah like say you have to agree on the api, yeah, that, the Amber, API. you have to agree the thing is right when you guys are doing your API, where's the documentation people <laughs> That's what I need. We need to be absolutely clear about the acceptance. Anyway, let's not get into that. We won't get into that argument, but I think sometimes front end needs to have the responsibility of figuring out what, what they want. And sometimes I think back end needs to have better documentation <laughs> so we know what to do for the post request and what we should be. The thing is, postman is pretty good to know yeah, what we're getting back. Yeah. I don't need document, but what I need to send is something that I need to know. Yeah, so mock it up for me. Me? Yeah. You mock it up for me and do some documentation. <laughs> Okay, we'll end it there. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening to part one. Listen to Simo speak about how she's found her experience at Makers as a technical coach. Spoke about best practices like TDD, solid. I don't think we've gotten to drive, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, (laughs) Stay tuned for next week where we'll be speaking to Simo about her career challenges as well as her tech tea. Until then. Available on all major podcast platforms. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.